What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. As always, I have not looked at any of these questions. Some of you guys DM'd me some questions, and whenever I do a Q&A box for the podcast, I'm open to you guys asking longer questions if you want, and if you don't feel like putting it in the box in like three different boxes, you can always shoot me a DM. So, we'll start with two of you guys, two of the questions that were asked, asked in a DM. The first one. Not sure if I missed out on your experiment recap of exercising every day or almost every day, but doing fewer exercises. How did it turn out? As it relates to the common folk, would it be okay to have some of your exercises spill onto a fifth day if needed? So the latter part of that question, as far as applying it to you guys out there, if you get a program from me or a program from someone else, and it's a three-day program, and you think, well, is there any downside for me splitting this up into four days? No. There isn't a downside. There, there's probably only an upside. Uh, in most real life practical terms, there's probably only an upside. Um, if that works better for you, I mean. And that goes in the other direction as well. Uh, if you have a five-day program and you want to squeeze it into four days, there's probably no downside either. That has more of a potential downside though. If you have four workouts that are now like 90 minutes and from minute 75 to 90, you only get crap work done. Or from 60 to 90, your effort really drops off. That would be a downside. If you normally have four 60-minute workouts and now you have five 70, uh, if you normally have five 60-minute workouts and now you have four 75-minute workouts and you feel like after minute 60, your ability to put forth good effort really drops off, then yeah, that, that that's a small downside. But I would say convenience rules all here that even though there's maybe small upsides or small downsides, they are nothing in comparison to what you can do consistently, what works best for your schedule. And so I think splitting up that workout from three days to four days or four days to five days and having more uh, shorter workouts, um, there's some potential upside, but not if that sucks for your schedule. And in the reverse, if you have five workouts and you want to squeeze it into four, there might be some potential downsides, but not nearly as important as, hey, this is what's best for me and my schedule. So how did it turn out for me? So if it was a while back. What I was doing was training four days a week for an hour. And what I went to do was took those same four days a week, same four workouts, and I split them over six days. And so I took one or two exercises from each day and I built two other days of the week. And so I was working out six days a week, um, but my workouts were like 30 minutes, right? 35 minutes maybe, right? Max 40 minutes. They were much shorter workouts. So instead of four days a week for an hour, it was six days a week for, you know, 30 to 45 minutes, depending on what exercises I had to do on that day. And Again, it matters about what works for your schedule. This worked for my schedule because guess what? I work from home and uh, my gym is at home. And so this was very easy for me to do six days a week. Just pop down to the gym, do 30 to 45 minutes instead of having to kind of gear myself up emotionally for a big, long one-hour workout. I, I It was a much lower barrier of entry when it came to like emotionally getting ready for my workouts and also from a time allocation perspective that it worked quite well. I really enjoyed having shorter workouts. I really enjoyed not needing like a double scoop of pre-workout and an emotional like speech to get ready for my workout. It's not like I, that I needed that, but I always felt like, hey, I have a long workout to do today. I really needed to like really focus on my nutrition or really focus on uh, my pre-workout or really make sure I carved out a, a large period of in my day 
to get this workout in. And when I was having shorter workouts, for me, that worked really well. And and I don't even say that with the past tense. I think that works really well for me. Um, the reason I stopped doing it is because now I'm doing a lot of endurance exercise. And so I actually took the length of those workouts when I split it down to six days I took the length of those workouts and I said this is the length of workout I really like I really like a shorter workout 40 minutes being my sweet spot but I can't do six of these anymore so I'm only doing four of these it turns out that that's probably just around maintenance volume for me so I'm not really making gains right now um I've probably actually, I probably undershot maintenance volume. I probably lost a tiny bit of muscle going down to like, now I'm doing three days a week, 40 minutes. Um, And I don't, uh, when I say I think I've lost some muscle, I wanna be very clear. That doesn't mean you will lose some muscle. I was doing six days at some, at my peak I'm talking about, I was doing six days a week, 90 minutes. Now I'm doing three days a week, 40 minutes. So that's 120 minutes versus six by 90s, 540 minutes. 540 minutes versus 120 minutes is a huge drop. And so, yeah, I've lost some muscle doing that, but I have kept the vast majority of my muscle and um, gotten myself to a point where I'm not going to lose any more muscle and I'm perfectly muscular, as muscular as I want to be and very happy with that. Um, I think that maintenance volume, the, I think that the amount of volume people need to do to make gains is quite low. I know I've transcended into a different question. Sorry about that. Uh, I think the, vol, the I've talked about that a million times. The amount of volume people need to do to make gains is quite low. But if you are, I was quite muscular um, doing a ton of training, then yeah, you can't all the way bring that down to like, what, it, what was that? Like one, it was less than a quarter of the training I was doing and expect to maintain all your muscle. I was training 540 minutes a week and I know minutes per week isn't a perfect proxy, of course, but I was doing 540 minutes a week and now I'm doing 120 minutes a week. I'm doing less than a quarter of the training I was doing. Uh, you know, I'm doing probably 22% of the training. Yeah, I didn't maintain all my muscle going down to 22% of the training I was doing. So um, it is also relative to what you were doing, not necessarily an absolute. It also has a lot to do with training age. If you're brand new to training, three by 40 minutes is gonna be a ton of training and you are gonna build a ton of muscle. Um, but if you're a pro bodybuilder training, you know, five 500 minutes a week or more and you go down to 100 minutes, yeah, you're gonna lose some muscle, but you're gonna maintain a lot of it too. All right. Next question. I saw, uh, I was about to say, I don't like saying the names, but um, I saw this. I didn't read it when you sent it. I know it's a little bit longer question, so let's stay with it. I'm sure it'll be applicable for a lot of you guys. I'm having a hard time combining my lifting and running. I wake up at 4.45 and take thyroid meds immediately. I can't eat for 30 minutes. So on run days, I go to my home gym and do three upper or lower lifts. Then I eat, then I run. I have one full body day and run five days. Three of the run days, I'm doing lifts before. My legs are tired all the time. Can't seem to figure out a schedule to make this work. I'm too tired after work, so morning is the only option. My total exercises for the week are eight lower and eight upper body, mostly compounds. I run 30 miles a week and 50 years old. My goal is speed with running and to maintain muscle mass and build hamstrings more. Any advice or or anything would be helpful. Um, I will start by saying this is a lot of training. I'm not saying too much. This is a lot of training. We are not dealing with a, a scenario where you're like very clearly doing an amount of training that you can handle. This is on the cusp. This is a lot of training. You're doing 30 plus miles a week and you're doing, you know, 16 working compound sets, let's say, um, 
oh, exercises. Uh, so 16 exercises, right? Two to three sets each, you know? So that, that's still quite a bit of training. Um, what could I tell you in this Q&A setting that would be helpful? Um, yeah, I think that uh, if your legs are tired all the time, then you're doing too much combination of running and lifting. Here, here, okay, okay, okay. All right, let's talk about something concrete here. Um, I might trade out some of your running for a non, a different modality. I'll call it cross training, a cross training modality, meaning not your primary form of cardio, not your race modality. I know you're not training for a race necessarily, but um, I would trade away at least one of your your runs for maybe a bike maybe a Stairmaster, maybe something else with lower impact. Um, I might trade out one of your runs for something lower intensity. So maybe you're doing all jogging or all intervals and maybe I would take some of that and make it lower intensity, some zone two stuff, maybe even zone two not running. At the end of the day, if your legs are tired all the time, your legs are doing more work than they can recover from. So you either need to bring down the leg, the lifting that you're doing, or the running that you're doing. And you can bring it down via intensity. You can do less intense running, less intense lifting. You can bring it down with volume, less sets, less days. Um, or what I would say is, okay, your legs are tired all the time. Guess what? Like that's kind of the name of the game when you're doing hybrid training, when you're doing a lot of cardio and a lot of uh, lower body training also, you're not always gonna feel amazing. My question to you is, are you progressing are you able to progress in your lifts over time? Because if you are, then, you know, if I were to kind of make it sound like a douche, I'd say, I don't care if you're tired all the time because clearly you're not so tired that you're unable to progress. And that to me is not so tired that we need to do something about it. And so if you're progressing in your lifts, if you're feeling like you're still, you know, um, able to improve your running performance over time, then you are by definition, doing an amount of volume that you can recover from because performance is improving. If you are stalling out, your legs are not, you can't progress in any of your lower body training, you're not progressing in your running, you're feeling beat up all the, all the time. Now, feeling tired, I know I just said feeling tired, but it's feeling tired and not progressing that would make me feel like you really need to change something. But if you're progressing and your running is improving over time, not every single run is a million times better and you're progressing over time in your lifts, maybe not every single time you're progressing on everything, but that would indicate to me that you're actually doing enough and, and you kind of just need to change your perspective of how fresh you're gonna feel. You're doing a lot of training, dude. You're not always gonna feel fresh. Make sure that you are regu- you know, deloading every eight to 12 weeks, taking a small step back in terms of intensity and volume, um, but, Dude, if you're, I keep calling you dude, but if you're progressing on your lifts, then I think it's more about you realizing, hey, when you do hybrid training, your your legs are gonna, gonna be tired, you know? I've had to recalibrate what it means to feel fresh at the start of a run, you know? Um, my legs are a little tired kind of all the time, you know? And and it's it's okay as long as it's not so fatigued that you can't progress. And so that would be my question. Those would be my thoughts. I think if you are not progressing, then something's gonna have to give. You're either gonna have to do less running or less lifting or less intense of one of them. I might, no matter what the answer to that question is, I might seek out a non-run modality and trade out one of your runs for a bike or a a rower or a Stairmaster or an elliptical, something a little bit lower impact, maybe something that's not causing as much fatigue in your legs. Um, Maybe trade out one of your interval days for a zone two day, a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just go out for a run 
a few days a week. And that's fine if you're not also doing an F ton of other training. Like what you do is less important when you don't do that much. And, I, and I'm not, that's not like in a condescending way. Like if you're like, hey, I, I do cardio twice a week and I lift twice a week. Should I be worried that what I'm doing is gonna cause me to overtrain? No, but if you're doing 30 plus miles of running and doing you know upwards of 50 working sets a week, now it matters what you're doing. Now the organization of this matters a bit more. Um, and so cool, hopefully that was helpful. And uh, you know, I wish I could help more. I will say that I will be looking to take on clients in the new year, in the next, in January, who specifically want to work on lifting and either running or biking. I guess a triathlete would also fall into that. I'm not so great on swimming uh, right now. It's just something I have no experience with. So ideally running. Um, people who are interested in, in a more hybrid approach, they want to, it's not like they, you don't need to be preparing for a, for a race. Although if you are, that's fucking awesome. I would love to do that. But um, I will be specifically taking on somewhere between five and 10 clients who specifically want to uh, dial in their more hybrid approach. Someone who wants to take both running or biking and lifting, not, not like you're fucking in the Tour de France or something, but seriously enough that they want to hire a coach. Cool. Okay, let me get over to the questions from Instagram. Take a quick sip of water here. Can't be having cotton mouth on these on these Q and A's here. All right, let's pull up some questions, guys. Let's do this. You know the drill. I'll just say that I'm going to keep it to a, a 30 minutes, but then we'll probably answer all these. Okay, uh, not too many questions. Let's see if I get sidetracked here. Okay, should collagen count towards daily protein since it's incomplete? Blah. Um, the answer is yes. I, I, I would count it. The, I would count it just because over the course of the entire day, if most of the protein that you're eating is complete then just count everything. But if you're someone who eats a lot of incomplete protein, then I would start to, it's not that I wouldn't count it. I would always count it. I would always count all protein. If you don't count collagen, then you can't count the protein from bread or the 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 protein from rice or the protein from beans or the, pro, like, you know, you can't go down this route of not counting anything that's incomplete. Um, what you should be doing is hitting your total daily amount and eating mostly mostly complete proteins. If you're doing that, some of your protein comes from incomplete sources, that's totally fine. If you're eating so much collagen, right, that it's totally throwing off that, that kind of ratio of most of your protein from complete sources, and it is now the case that not most of your protein is from complete sources because you're having so much collagen, then that doesn't mean I wouldn't track it, but that is something that I would address. So truthfully, I would always track all proteins, period. But you wanna have mostly complete proteins if your goal is building muscle. And so you should not be having a large percentage of your total daily intake from collagen, period. Next question, vitamin D supplement worth it in the winter? Here's the deal. I will say, disclaimer, go get your blood work done. See where your blood vitamin D levels are at first. Do I think that the average person can probably benefit from a vitamin D supplement probably year round without needing to go check their blood work? Uh, I, uh, probably, just because on average, statistically speaking, most people don't get outside enough. Most people are uh, not at the upper end of the reference range, let's just say. Not that the, necessarily the upper end is inherently better, but uh, go get your blood work done. If it's low, take a vitamin D supplement. If you wanna try 
If you're at the low end of the reference range and you want to try a vitamin D supplement to see if you feel better getting to the reference range, I think it's 30 to 70. If you're in the in like the 30s and you don't feel great, you have low energy levels, whatever, you don't get outside much and you want to say, hey, if I take a supplement and I get myself up into like the 50s, do I feel better? I think that's a reasonable strategy that I would talk over talk it over with your doctor. Thoughts on mouth taping, seeing it everywhere. Are there real benefits? I have no idea and I have no experience. I am getting a bunch of... Um, a bunch of uh, ads on Instagram about mouth taping. I don't have a ton of experience. I It, it strikes me at least um, at first glance as one of those things that has a mechanism by which it seems like it would be important, but probably doesn't move the needle. And usually what happens when, when you have something like that is you have people who anecdotally will tell you it, it radically changed their life and that's how they sell you on it. They have a mechanism plus an anecdote and bang, they sell a bunch of it. But on a large scale, it doesn't, I bet you, I, nope, I don't bet you. Uh, my my knee jerk instinct is that it's not a needle mover, but I also don't think it's something that's dangerous that you can't try. To me, it would fall in the category of give it a shot and see if you feel any difference at all. Um, but I haven't seen anything super convincing to the point where I'm, I've given it a shot. Next question. I noticed during hip thrusts, I tend to put more weight on the outer edge of my feet, which causes the inside arch to lift upwards slightly. Big issue that I should really focus on, fully planted feet or not huge. Definitely not a huge deal. Definitely not a huge deal. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it's a hard thing to fix either. So I think with a little bit of intention, you you could... Fix is even a strong word because I can't even say conclusively that this is a problem. Um, definitely not a big issue that you should really focus on. Um, not something I would focus on. I would want to make sure you're pushing through the majority of your foot, right? The whole tripod foot, right? Um, but I'm not really too concerned with this as long as your whole foot is staying in contact with the floor. And so... I would want your whole foot to stay in contact with the floor and as much as possible want you pushing through your whole foot. But shit, I, I really like, if you're like, hey, I'm, you know, if I asked you, hey, are you taking your glutes close to failure and not having discomfort anywhere? And you're like, yeah, I am. I'd be like, okay, you're good then. Like um, the, the, de- the proof's in the pudding there. Next question. If protein needs are met, does going over on protein with calories in check matter? So essentially what you are asking is, is there such a thing as too much protein so long as I'm within my calories? And the answer is yes, there is, but not because of the protein. You're not going to eat so much protein that the protein by itself, you know, outside of, uh, let me rephrase this. If you're, if you're eating within your calories, um, you're not going to eat so much protein that the protein itself is going to have a negative impact, but there is displacement, right? There's opportunity costs. So if you eat 2000 calories and you have 200 grams of protein, that's 800 calories. That's 1200 calories left for carbs and fats. Um, and that's plenty and that's fine. That would work great. However, in an extreme example, let's say you have the same 2000 calories and you have, um, 450, uh, grams of protein. That's 1800 calories. Right? And so you'd only have 200 calories left for carbs and fats. That would not be enough to hit essential fat needs. Um, you know, technically carbs are non-essential, so it's hard to make a, a really scientific argument, but that would be an issue, I'd say, where you either don't feel your best or don't perform your best. And so it's more about the displacement of other calories, the risk that you're displacing essential 
other calories, namely fats. The, the, however, what I just said practically will never happen to you. Nobody is eating 2,000 calories and having 450 grams of protein. So in real life scenarios, this is you have nothing to worry about. Um, if you're, you know, I guess you could check in with how much fat you're eating on average, make sure it's at that like 0.3 grams per pound or more. Um, but most people are, most people are, most people intuitively will eat that much fat. If you're 150 pounds, that's 45 grams of fat. Um, that seems like a very, very, very reasonable amount that you could hit without hyper-focusing on it. So it's unlikely that you're going to eat so much protein within your calorie allotment that it's displacing calories from carbs and fats such that you are not meeting minimum requirements of those. And minimum requirement of the fat, something like 0.3 grams per pound daily on average. Fats definitely work on a longer, longer time scale. You could have higher on one day, lower on another day. It would work, would work totally fine. Carbs, technically non-essential, but I would pay attention to how you feel and perform as um, to help kind of indicate where you want to be. Cool. Next question. Um, How's the running going? Any updates? Um, the running is going well. What I will say is the fitter you get, the more like you're able to kind of fuck yourself up with hard workouts. In the beginning, yes, everything is relatively hard because you're not fit. But as you get more fit, you can actually push yourself harder. Now I'm at that point where I'm running eight miles at a clip, six miles at a clip. And those workouts are adding a lot of fatigue to my week. When I consider the rest of the training I'm doing, some of my zone two rides, I have a higher intensity uh, uh, bike. I have three lifts per week. And as I've started to have multiple weeks, I'm talking the last four weeks where I've been running, my two runs are six miles and, or four to six miles and six to 10 miles. Again, don't take any of this as this is how you should do it. I've been gently increasing volume for a long time. I have a race coming up. I have other training that I'm doing. There's so many pieces of context that should discourage you from just taking what I'm saying and applying it to you. Um, but those runs, those are really hard for me. And I'm now just fit enough to really put my body through the ringer. And so those workouts have started to be really hard and I've had to kind of recalibrate what else I have room for in my week, um, especially with the race coming up where, you know, starting next week, we'll begin a little bit of a, a little bit of a taper. Um, and so the running's going great. I absolutely love working with my coach. We've been working a lot on running technique and not because running technique is like the absolute most important thing in the world. And, and there, is, and there isn't some universal perfect technique. There are basic principles, but you have to apply them to people's individualized biomechanics. Everybody has different biomechanics and anatomy. Um, so there are subtle differences that 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 kind of don't allow for there to be a universal best running form, but it's been really fun to learn because at the end of the day, that's what I want to do. I want to coach. I want to teach. I want to be able to help people make cardio fun. I want to help people get better at cardio, train for races if they want to. And so learning, becoming a, a big gate cycle nerd is something that I'm working on right now. And so that's been super fun. Um, uh, today is, God, what is today? The first, my race is on the 17th. So two weeks from this up, upcoming Sunday, I'm recording this on the first, there's a Friday. Um, so next week I have, an, I think a normal week of workouts and then, uh, maybe a tiny reduction in volume next week. And then the following week, a little bit more reduction in volume, keeping intensity kind of where it is. Um, and then I'm going to head into the race, which I'm super excited about. Um, 
I guess one other thing I could share is I bought, I, I was wearing ASICs and the ASICs had quite a bit of heel drop. Um, and if you're not familiar with what that means, it's just basically the distance between, uh, the vertical distance between your heel and your toe. I was interested in the distribution of work along your feet and your and your uh, calves and your shins and your hams and your quads and your glutes and, and, and all that stuff. How does the shoe that you're wearing kind of lead you to distribute the weight differently or change your technique in some way? So I bought a pair of zero drop shoes. Zero drop shoes have no drop between the heel and the toe. And there's some people who would die on the hill of zero drop is the way to go. You gotta run, you gotta wear zero drop, zero drop, zero drop. It's gonna help you not heel strike. Heel striking's bad. And there's some theoretical merit to all that. Anyway, I bought the heel drop shoes. They're very different than the ones I was wearing that have quite a larger drop and a little bit more cushion. Um, and I wore them and what's cool is they didn't feel amazing. They felt okay. They didn't feel amazing though. And that's cool to me because it shows that there is room for, that it does kind of matter, not a ton, but there that there at, at least is a difference. If I wore two very different shoes and I noticed no difference, that would have been like, oh, well, I guess this isn't a huge talking point. Um, but I did notice a difference. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stick with the original shoes I've been training in. And then when I'm done, I'm gonna give a block of time to the zero drop. And I'm gonna see if my body adapts, if my technique adapts a little bit, and if that is a net positive. It might not be. Not Zero drop, people get like, people just get crazy on the internet. You gotta wear zero drop, gotta wear zero. You don't gotta do that, you don't. Um, and so I will give it some time because I really wanna experiment. See, I can, I can tell how it might adjust one's technique, but for now, that's not something I'm gonna go into with, you know, 17 days left of the race. Cool. Fat grips, are they something fun to incorporate? Question mark. What about grip strength, question mark? Fat grips are mostly, fat grips for the way that fat grips intends you to use them are not what I would do. I would not do bicep curls with the fat grips. Um, I wouldn't work on grip strength with the fat grips. Basically fat grips are like these like hard plastic things that you can put over the dumbbell so that the grip itself has a wider circumference. Now, there are two reasons to own fat grips. One is if you're doing band work, you can slip the fat grip over the band. And now, instead of holding the band in your hand, you're holding this really comfortable grip, a really comfortable thing that fits in your hand a lot better. The second reason to have fat grips is if you're doing cable pressing. If you are pressing uh, with cables and the handle that you're using has a really small circumference, you can find that there's a lot of shaking that goes on. Sorry for shaking the whole camera here, but. Putting fat grips on that allows you to press into something with a larger surface area and it can feel really great. And so, okay, if you're doing band pressing at home, same answer. If you're doing, I recommend people that are training at home, you don't need to get fat grips because it's like 50 bucks. You can get knockoffs for like 20 bucks on Amazon. But sure, you can just hold the band. It's not the end of the world. But if you're like, hey, I spent 20 bucks to make it a little bit more comfortable, I think that that's fine. I, I think. It just depends what's worth it to you. If you do a lot of band pulling, we do some band pulling in the program. And if you're gonna take it hard, heavy, close to failure, I love having a more comfortable grip to hold onto. You could even just take a D handle uh, and a carabiner and attach that to the band. It's just nicer to have something more comfortable than the band to hold. But all in all, I don't think that they're a must have, definitely. They're on my, if you look at the uh, exercise or the equipment list for my group program, for my home program, it's on the optional list. It's not on the must have. Next question, I I overtrained somehow. I can feel it in my resting heart rate and ele elevate. Uh, I can feel it in my resting heart rate 
elevated and overall advice. Yeah, undertrain for a little bit. If you're overtrained, undertrain, right? Uh, decrease some of the volume, do less sets. Um, take a fucking rest day, take a day off, take two days off. Um, it's difficult to give you a specific recommendation. If you're if you are overreached or overtrained, meaning you are you're not recovering well, maybe you're having um, really chronic soreness, and maybe it's you have cortisol dysregulation where you're getting up at three four in the morning, cracked out of your mind, just like wide awake. Um, you're having trouble sleeping. You're more irritable. Um, then I would undertrain, and I, I know I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek because it's not a specific recommendation. But if you're overtrained, you need to undertrain. You need to get yourself back to baseline by shifting your work to rest ratio more towards the rest side. That might mean keeping all of your workouts scheduled the same, but doing less sets. That might mean keeping all of your workouts scheduled the same, but doing less intensity. That might mean doing less workouts. That might mean taking some of your workouts and maybe you're you're doing running and instead of going for a hard interval session, you do a zone two session, a zone one session, go for a walk instead, do a lower intensity zone two ride. So if you're overtrained, you got to undertrain. And so you can do that in a multitude of ways. Another word is, you know, maybe consider taking a deload. Maybe you don't need a full week deload, but maybe at least, you know, two to four days of, hey, I'm going to reduce intensity, reduce volume, reduce stress and increase rest. So that's what I would do. Um, do you think two hours of cardio in one session, the benefits drop off? Ooh, do you think after two hours of cardio in one session, the benefits drop off? Um, I do. I do think that. Um, I don't think that there are categorical rules, really. There aren't a lot of hard and fast rules. But, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, I really don't think I would ever program a running workout longer than two hours. Out a running workout, by the way, not a, not a bike workout. It's different. Um, um, but it's not that different, right? Depends. It depends what the workout is. But specifically for running, um, essentially, what again? Th- th- this this is very general. I want I don't want people to be like Jordan said. Never ever ever do a workout longer than two hours. I think if you're doing a workout longer than two hours, you really strongly need to do a couple considerations. Number one is. Most people after about 90 minutes to two hours are going to experience what's called cardiac drift, which means in order to continue working. So let's say I'm running at a 10 minute mile, right? And for the first 90 minutes, I'm, yeah, my heart rate's elevated, but it's elevated um, an amount. So I'm, I'm experiencing um, a level of work that is, that is correlates with the amount of work I'm doing. How, what's a better way to say? The, the best term is stimulus to fatigue ratio, but I don't want to use that word. Um, the work is still worth the fatigue, the fatigue. The fitness I'm gaining is still worth the fatigue I'm incurring. But what will happen is, in order for me to maintain my 10-minute mile pace, my heart rate is going to keep climbing. It's going to keep climbing, right? Because in, I'm getting more tired, duh. And so somewhere in that 90 minutes, two hour range, I can still run my 10 minute mile, but my heart rate, instead of being 160, might be 185 now. And so now I'm really fatigued. I'm incurring a lot of stress, but the amount of fitness I'm getting is the same because I'm still running that 10 minute mile. And so I'm getting a worse stimulus to fatigue ratio the longer I work. And we start to see that stimulus to fatigue ratio move in a less favorable direction after that 
let's say two hour mark. And so what ends up happening is after that two hour mark, you are still gaining in fitness, but the amount of adaptations you're getting, positive adaptations, are costing you way more fatigue, right? You're way more tired and you're, you're incurring way more stress and fatigue for the same amount of fitness. And so that ratio becomes worse the longer that you run. And so you'd be better off stopping the workout and starting again on another day. It's not too dissimilar. Listen, guys, people freak out when I say that. It's not too dissimilar with what you would do with a lifting workout. Somebody says, hey, Jordan, you know, what about a three-hour lifting session? My question to you is, how good is the work you're doing in hour three? It's probably a lot less good than in hour one. And so you're still getting adaptations in hour three, but they are a worse ratio of stimulus to fatigue, of adaptation to fatigue. And so the longer you do a weight, a, a, a resistance training session, the less you're getting out of it, but you might be getting more tired, right? And so in that, in the resistance training example, you might not be getting more tired, but you might be getting worse adaptations. And so we have worse stimulus and the same amount of fatigue. That's a bad stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? Worse stimulus, same fatigue. In running, you might get the same stimulus because you could actually maintain your pace, but your fatigue is going up. Your heart rate's just going up and up and up and up. We call that uh, decoupling or cardiac drift. Um, there also seems to be a limit to the amount of bo positive bone adaptations that happen. And it seems to be around that two hour mark, you maximize the bone and durability related adaptations that you can get. So if... If I'm training somebody for running, I'm not programming anything longer than two hours, period. Like, not because it's impossible that there's any benefit there, but because that's just almost like intellectually doesn't make much sense to me. Now, the reason I might program a long run is mostly like a longer run, two hours plus, um, would be mostly for psychological purposes, mostly for like building psychological like confidence and getting somebody to actually get out on the road for that long and go through the actual like mental work of being out there for that long. Um, but you're pro like, it's not complicated guys. There is a per session volume that you can, there's a, an amount of work you can do in a single session where that works. The benefit of that work starts to diminish over time. We all know that if someone's like, Hey, would you ever study for 12 straight hours? It's like, well, what if I study for three hours and then took a break and then did another three hours? That's probably better than one six hour stretch. Like we all understand that the longer you do something, the quality of that thing goes down, right? And so that six hour studying, I might feel just as mentally fatigued as I am after the two three hour sessions, but the two three hour sessions were higher quality because I had that rest in the middle. It's not a complicated phenomenon to say that there is a per session volume amount that after you start to see diminishing returns in terms of benefit. And for cardio workouts, it, it seems to be around this two hour mark, depends on the intensity and the athlete for sure, specifically with running and some of those bone strengthening uh, adaptations that happen. We There is some research that that kind of caps out around the two hour mark. And so I would not schedule, I wouldn't, a lot of people get obsessed over the long run. They're going to do 15, 20 miles, they're gonna get out there for two and a half, three hours. It's like, well, hold on. Like, um, you know, I might not, I, I might not do that. I might schedule a second workout instead, break it up, have two more efficient workouts. So, all right, let me get off the uh the high horse about that. Where do you get the triceps ball rope attachment thingy? So I think you're talking about the the blue 
kind of spheres that I've been using for this tricep press exercise. If you've been watching my stories, um, I got it on Amazon. I would search blue ball cable attachment and you'll find it. It's, it's for like rock climbing, I think. Switched to converging machine press two years ago with more pounds progress every week. I moved to traditional barbell press a few weeks ago and I'm 30 pounds down from previous high. Shouldn't these overlap a bit more with less strength loss? I'm discouraged. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's an, an expectation I would recommend. Um, there is a lot of overlap in the muscles that you use, but it's like saying, I know, I know, I know it's not the same, but, but I know that you know what I'm about to say is that just having stronger muscles does not mean you'll automatically in the short term be stronger at another exercise that uses that muscle. There is a specificity component. Now, I bet you that if you stay with the traditional bench press, you will get better rapidly and you will supersede where you may have been in the past if you've built a lot of pec strength over this time. But in the short term, you haven't been bench pressing, so maybe you have stronger pecs, but you're worse at benching. It's like if you haven't back squatted in a while and all you've been doing is hack squats and then you go to the back squat and you are weaker than you've been in the past, but you're like, well, that can't be. I I have stronger quads. It can be because you haven't been squatting. Maybe you have stronger quads, but you are a worse squatter. Now, skill, coordination, technique adaptations, they happen quickly. And so if you stick with the traditional barbell, if this person hypothetically sticks with that barbell back squat, you will be able to take the new stronger muscles you have and you will get rapidly better at the bench press, rapidly better at the back squat. And you will, in theory, supersede or surpass where you were before. And so there is a specificity that you just can't get around. You cannot just train um, and get stronger pecs unless you get, unless you get like double as strong, right? Unless we're talking about like, I'm so freaking strong. It doesn't matter that I'm not as good of a bench pressing. I'm 60 pounds heavier than the last time I checked this. It's like, okay, that now we're talking about a difference in, that is so great. It won't matter that you're worse at bench pressing. You'll be stronger. Barring that sort of an extreme example, I'm not surprised that you're weaker. You might categorically know for a fact you have bigger, stronger pecs, delts, and triceps, but be worse at benching. And so in the short term, you will not be able to lift as much in the bench press. In the medium to the long term, as you get better at bench pressing again, With your new stronger pecs, delts, and triceps, you will be able to lift more. In theory, hypothetically, that's how that would go. Next question. I'm rethinking protein needs to maintain muscle. What's the low end intake in a cut or maintenance? 0.7 grams per pound. Uh, If you are overweight or have obesity, it might be even lower than that, but 0.7 grams per pound. A relook at the research sees a diminishing drop-off at around 1.4 grams per kilogram. That's like 0.6 grams per pound. Um, so I like to just round that up just to be safe. 0.7 grams per pound. I'm very muscular, but would like to cut 10 pounds. think I could use more carbs and keep muscle. Yeah. 0.7 grams per pound. You're going to be great in a cut 0.7 grams per pound. You're going to be fine. Lift weights 0.7 grams per pound. You're going to be fine. Um, struggled to deadlift 200 pounds with the seven foot barbell, but then did it with five, five foot is weight distribution a thing. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, 100%. Uh, Shorter moment arm, you'll be able to lift more weight. And that's sometimes why people can lift a little bit more with uh, a hex bar. And that's totally normal. Weight distribution, totally a thing. Yeah, if you go from that barbell, that five foot barbell to a hex bar, a hex bar is is more different 
uh, is different for more reasons. So, so not only because it will be shorter and, and the weight will be closer to you. Um, but yeah, that is one reason. Red flags and green flags when looking for a coach. I I, I think I think you asked this in my last podcast Q&A. I would go back and listen to this one. I went over a lot of red flags for coaches. So even if it wasn't you asking, we went over this in the last Q&A. So go, go back and listen to the last Q&A podcast, literally the last one that I uploaded. <clears throat> when and how much to eat before workout and not be fasted. Half a banana 10 minutes before start, okay? Here's the deal. Very simple. When you, If you do this, and then you start working out. Do you feel okay? Or do you feel like you're still digesting? Do you get a knot in your stomach? Do you get a cramp? There is no correct answer to this. You don't want to still feel like you're digesting food while you're training. And so if you do this and you're like, actually, I feel great in my training. I don't feel like I'm all like gurgly. I'm, I'm, uh, feel like I'm cramping. Like I have a, I'm bloated. Then you're good. Only you can answer this question. Half a banana 10 minutes before you start, I bet you you don't feel anything. I bet you you feel just fine and it works great. I don't know that. Only you can know that. The truth is, the further away you are from training, the more you can eat. The closer you are to training, the less stuff you should eat and the more quickly digesting it should be. If you are eating three hours before your session, eat whatever you want. Fiber. Everyone's like, don't eat fat before you train. It's like, you can if you're not if you're not working out for a while. Of course you can. Yeah, fat slows down digestion. Cool. I'm working out in three freaking hours. Like I'm gonna be fine. And so it's like if you're if you're if you have to eat something an hour before you train. Yeah, don't eat stuff that digests very slowly. Right. Don't eat a lot of fat and fiber. Right. Eat faster digesting carbs and faster digesting protein. Um, maybe even liquids. Right. And so there is no rocket science to this. You should eat something that within the time frame that you have that allows you to feel good when you train, not like you're still digesting food. All right, thanks for asking questions, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.